0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mike on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I'd like to thank my latest subscribers on Patreon, Robert and The Comichi School for their support and all my other Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash amic on the podium and you'll find many ways to subscribe, extra bonus material and a whole new series of interviews to enjoy, all for the price of a pint of beer once a month. You can also support the podcast by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help the show reach a bigger audience and will be greatly appreciated. Today, I conduct a conversation with an American conductor who has been a chief conductor or music director on both sides of the Atlantic. Primarily, she is associated with two orchestras, having been music director in Virginia for 29 years and in Buffalo for 21 years and counting. It's a real pleasure to welcome... Joanne Foletta Joanne lovely to talk to you today how are you
1: I'm fine Mike lovely to talk to you
0: um, how are you coping with quarantine and lockdown
1: well it's it's been difficult I have to say but uh, it's it's certainly uh, made us think about things in a different way and we're constantly working on plans here to uh, reopen and um, figure out how many people on the stage. And so in a, in a way, it's been a good challenge to sort of rethink how we make music.
0: Mm, that's true. And on a personal level, are you, like me, have you just stopped looking at scores or are you really learning things that you've always wanted to learn?
1: Well, you know, I looked at scores for, I would say, about the first month and then then I became discouraged because I just didn't know when we'd start again. So. Mm. Uh, I'm, I would say I'm, I'm trying to discover pieces that I don't know at all, in particular to look more deeply into diversity, which is a very, very big issue right now all over the world. Yeah. Uh, so that's been, that's been a great learning experience, looking at scores and listening to, to recordings of music that I did not know.
0: Well, much later on, you know, we'll talk about the fact that you seem to know pieces that lots of us didn't know already anyway, when we come to talk about recordings. Um, But now I'm going to go, if you don't mind, right back to the beginning. And can you tell us where music first came into your life and how it first came into your life?
1: Well, I remember it very clearly because it was a gigantic surprise to me and and the beginning of my life, I could say, uh, on my seventh birthday, my father gave me a small classical guitar, which I had no idea was coming as a gift. I was shocked by it. And he also had made arrangements for the very next day to have a teacher come to start my classical guitar lessons. And it was for me, I don't know the, the beginning of a voyage. I suppose that I remember that so clearly. I remember just being entranced by the open strings or even the way, even the way the instrument, the fragrance of the wood, the way the strings felt when I pressed them down. So it it was a, a it was a very, very important moment in my life. And uh, that was the that was the beginning of my journey in music. So I remember that very, very clearly and um, I guess when it became obvious to my parents that music was very important to me we started to go to a lot of concerts and that was when my my uh, fascination with the orchestra came to the fore so
0: yeah because you know even though I've read that you you did do some freelancing later on with the Met and the New York Phil on guitar and mandolin they're not orchestral instruments that you see regularly are they I mean so it's wonderful that you got you got that um, introduction via concert going to orchestras at such an early age.
1: I did. And I remember being really overwhelmed, you know, at the age of nine or ten. Uh, I, I suppose I couldn't put it into words then, but there's something about the power of the orchestra, the sound of the music, of course, but also the experience of all these people on stage with such intensity. I mean, the this sort of... Um, Devotion they had, and they were all different, of course. You know, every orchestra, of course, is completely different, with lots of different characters in there, and and ages, and and types of people. But they were all so focused on this amazing product that was so beautiful. So I remember saying to my parents that I wanted to become a conductor. I think at the age of ten or eleven, and uh, they, not being professional musicians, uh, I suppose, were a little bewildered by it, but. Uh, uh, they were very supportive and and, and that was that was a journey of course in itself you know starting to realize when I came to the conservatory that there weren't really many women who were conducting at that point so
0: Mm. so which conservatory did you go to
1: I started at the Manis College of Music um, because it was at that point the only conservatory in New York City that accepted the classical guitar as an instrument mm. now since then, um, I think almost every conservatory, every conservatory accepts classical guitar, but then it wasn't it wasn 't so common so i I went in uh, hoping to be a double major and uh, after a year of classical guitar uh, and uh, Uh, And auditing the conducting classes. I was allowed to be a double major So I don't know if they they ever had another double major of classical guitar and and orchestral conducting but But it was exactly what I wanted and and uh, I'm so grateful to that school and then when I went on to Juilliard for my master's and my doctorate They did not have a program in classical guitar, but by then I think my my uh, Interest was focused really more on the orchestra. I just uh, I realized what a vast ocean of knowledge I needed. So I I concentrated on that. I still play and I I played all my life, but but, um, that was a turning point maybe for me.
0: So at Manners College and also at the Juilliard, who were your teachers? And if you could try and, I mean, I'm sure they were very different, but try and um, let us know what their sort of style was Whether they had an ethos, whether they had an overall, you know, whether they concentrated on stick technique or score study. Um, Who were your teachers at this time?
1: Well, uh, uh, let me talk about the two of them at Juilliard because they had really the most impact on me, although I Mm. did get to study with Semyon Vishkov at Manus. Oh, wow. Yes, Semyon had just come to Manus uh, from the Soviet Union and. was our teacher for a while. And that was fabulous experience. Mm. But then when I went on to Juilliard, I studied with uh, Sixten Erling uh, and George Mester. And they were both very different. And for me, it was uh, the perfect blend of of approaches to conducting. With uh, Maestro Erling, we would sit in his studio for hours, simply going over the scores, every bar of every score that, that I studied with him. And he, he, he had conducted almost everything. He was a music director of the Detroit Symphony for a while and, and several orchestras in Sweden. That was, that was his way. He never really talked about technical things, although he might talk about something that was particularly challenging. But it was all about looking at every bar and understanding what the composer was writing and what you needed to do to support that to support Mm. that artistry Uh, and with George Mester it was exactly the opposite we had a small small class at Juilliard of four or five students and it was all about technically helping the orchestra to play uh, how to realize the sound in your head through your gestures how to run a rehearsal how to talk to musicians so uh, it was it was an amazing confluence for me to be able to work with two very different teachers
0: that's wonderful isn't it that you get that uh overall package from two different people. That's super. Um
1: I, I, mean, I feel very lucky, very lucky.
0: Yeah, I mean I I did one year when I was at Conservatoire with Jonathan Delmar and we did an awful lot of learning scores and the practicalities of of marking scores and things like that. But I don't remember him really often talking about stick technique. So you know, I had to fathom that out for myself, um, and I was lucky in the fact that you know I got into the CBSO and watched great conductors like Simon Rattle, and and sort of figured that out for myself. But yeah, I wished I'd had somebody say, you know, do this with your wrist. What you know, hold the bat on this way. Uh, you do realize that if you do that gesture there, you'll get this sound and not the sound that you were after. Um, that sounds like a really good mix.
1: Yes, and George George was like that. George Mester was exactly like that. He had he had exercises that we practiced for for you know the depth of the sound and, and uh, ways of going in and out of subdivisions that we practiced. So so it was it was quite different than, than mm. you know the technical. When you finally felt comfortable with it, it enabled you to not think about it, which was very good. And we had also the really wonderful opportunity since he lived in New York and was a very generous person to have Leonard Bernstein come in and give us master classes mm. at the Juilliard which mike as you can imagine was always terrifying it was terrifying you know Je- Leonard Bernstein for us in the United States was was uh, you know like a, an idol of of extraordinary proportions. I mean, he was an American who who was conducting all over the world, and but he was he was a a, a multi-talented musician of, uh, on, of of the highest order. So, so studying with him was at, one, at the same point terrifying, but but also so uplifting. And mm. uh, and for for Maestro Bernstein, it was all about the emotion in the music. It wasn't about, and that was something different than the other two. It wasn't about technique. It wasn't about um, um, even, even specific st- score study. It was more about uh, when we were studying Carmen, for instance, of imagining being in the bullring and the sun beating down upon us and the smell of blood there and, and the proud screaming. Uh, and that's, that's how he lived his life in this music. And it was, it was thrilling to be in his presence and, and hear him coach us.
0: That reminds me very much of an experience I had with somebody I think is has a similar sort of mentality. In that, um, when Andrew Nelsons joined the CBSO as music director, and I was assistant conductor, I, he came to watch me do a rehearsal, and I, I wanted to make sure that he was happy with me being assistant conductor. And afterwards, we sat down together, and, and he'd seen this rehearsal. It was the first time we we'd worked on a, this piece of Stravinsky. And then he said the magic words to me. He said, yes, but Mike, when are you going to talk about the music? And for him, it was all about the music making. And it didn't matter what the gestures were or how he did it or what metaphors he used. It, it was Everything was about serving the music and getting it out there. And, and it changed my entire approach about, you know, I was often thinking so much about things I should be doing technically or things I should be saying when he just said, look, it doesn't matter. Just get it out there. And it sounds like Bernstein was the same. By then he'd 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 realised you could conduct but he wanted to see what you were going to do with the music, is that right?
1: That's right. It was exactly that way. It was exactly that way. And uh, and it was a, a very important lesson because of course, you know, we are especially when we're starting, we're really concerned about are we are we clear? <laughs> Can mm-hmm. people follow us? Are we are we making that retard in quite the right way? And you know, for Bernstein watching him uh, conduct because he would always conduct our our orchestra afterwards, watching him conduct, it was a revelation because it was very hard for us as conductors to see what exactly he was doing, but somehow Mike, the orchestra always knew. Yeah,
0: they yeah, played yeah.
1: things so beyond their ability and their experience level, and I think it was because he sort of beamed out that love of that music to them. I mean, he just, he just—it was a force—and mm. they were able to follow things that that uh, I know they would never have followed with any other conductor. He was—he was quite amazing in that way with his sheer love of that music and passion for that music.
0: So we leave Juilliard and you're out into the big wide world. Um, How long was it before you got your first music director position? I read it was the Jamaica Symphony Orchestra, is that right?
1: Were you yes, guest conducting I,
0: and and you know doing the rounds as they say?
1: Well, no, actually, it was it's, Jamaica is is a, a sort of a borough of of New York. So it was yeah. a, it was an orchestra in New York, which was, uh, and I was doing it while I was actually um, at Juilliard. Oh wow! Yeah, and it, and it, it's 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 a very humble beginning, I have to say, Mike, because this was a this was a community orchestra, and I was for one year their assistant conductor and. At that point, the music director I, I mean to be honest couldn't take it anymore and <laughs> left. so uh- they gave me the job now it didn't have any salary but uh, but i had an orchestra mm-hmm. and these orchestra members you know it gave me a certain respect for community orchestras which i still have they were people who had jobs of course not musicians not professional musicians and they'd spend their days working and you know teaching they were doctors or someone was a lawyer and then they'd come uh, at night and play music uh was it perfect no but i realized what a special thing it was to be in the middle of these people's Mm -hmm. lives and and it was a beautiful thing and and slowly um i began to ask friends at juilliard and manis and manhattan to come and be with us and they were always particularly interested if we did uh very big repertoire you know like big Stravinsky. Uh, a ballets or a Mahler symphony—that's what they wanted to, to do because they knew they had to try this out once. Not, mm. They can play these things. So, so with them, I was able. We were all able to do all these big pieces for the first time, partly with community players and uh, largely with young players in conservatories. So, that was my first. I would I wouldn't say professional, but it was my first real learning experience and. Then when I was at um, Juilliard, I did get my first professional job, which was the music director of the Denver Chamber Orchestra. That's Mm. for a New York girl who'd never been sort of west of, I don't know, New Jersey or something (laughs) to to have a job in Colorado was amazing and wonderful. And that was started my learning process of, of not only conducting, of course, because that was, that evolves constantly, but also how to be a music director, Mm. Uh, which is 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 a very different thing, so um but I feel very, very fortunate that 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 led to many other things then
0: I think in the u s what you call a community orchestra might be what we would call in the u k an amateur orchestra yes um which is probably more derogatory title um but I mean, I've conducted amateur orchestras that was where I first started and and I still conduct two now, even though you know i'm went well into a professional career, there are still two I conduct now because. A, they're almost as good, if not as good, as some professional orchestras. And B, they're willing to play things, you know, anything. And the energy that you get from them is wonderful. But I have to say also, hopefully you'll agree with me, if you can fix a problem with an amateur orchestra, you can definitely fix a problem with a professional orchestra. You you have to really find a way of fixing things, don't you?
1: <laughs> it's true and i agree with you i mean there's a certain certain joy in that those orchestras that you don't get anywhere else and and you know the problems that that you find with them are really the same problems to a much lesser degree uh, mm. with with professional orchestras. So so you learn where the difficult spots are. You learn where the problem areas are uh, with an orchestra that you can work with, and it's a, and it is it it's a, it can be a very joyful experience, as you know. I'm glad you said that because you understand exactly what I mean.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, even down to things like programming, and this may or may not stay in the podcast. Depends on how long we chat for, but. You know, I'm supposed to be conducting the orchestra I conduct in London, which is called the Corinthian Chamber Orchestra in February, and I don't know whether any professional orchestra would agree to the programme that we're supposed to be doing at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, which is the Lutoslawski Concerto for Orchestra, the Rachmaninoff Rhapsody on the Theme of Paganini, and then the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Gosh, um, you must have a super amateur orchestra. <laughs> That's fantastic.
0: They are incredible, and I wouldn't have programmed it if I didn't think that they could play it on the matinées <laughs> that we do. But no pro no pro orchestra would do that program because it's so incredibly. Hard, exhausting, yeah, yeah,
1: how wonderful! Oh, they'll never forget that program, Mike. No, I'm no, sure no, that. Neither,
0: <laughs> neither will I if we ever get to do it. Um, <laughs> so, um, on to Denver, and then as you say, music director, you're music director of Bay Area Women'sville and Long Beach Symphony Orchestra, but then the two big jobs, which one of them's just about to finish, am I right? The Virginia That's Symphony nice. Orchestra, and then Buffalo as well, yeah, with Virginia, you were there. Oh, let's do the maths. Twenty-nine years, um, right. and with Buffalo, twenty-one years and counting. So, yes. being a music director, you, you must love that. And I know it's different in the US because it's 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 got to be community-based. And it's not just walking in, through, you know, ten weeks a year and being the being the boss. It's it, the whole thing to do with fundraising and community. And uh, so, tell us what what is it about that that you love, and especially those two places, Virginia and Buffalo.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. And it is, it is about being really the main ambassador for music in your community and mm. being completely involved in fundraising, marketing, development, and and things that, that don't always happen outside of the U.S. But the satisfaction of building an orchestra that you can do in that way is, I think, second to, to none. I mean, it's, it's just the most amazing life experience of taking an orchestra from one place and helping it grow artistically first, of course, because that is the reason for, for, for an orchestra, mm. but then also convincing the uh, people around you in the community of how valuable this incredible artistic resource is, uh, convincing people to be a part of your vision in terms of supporting and helping. Um, you really feel, as I do now leaving Virginia, that you've made a very big difference in a community's life. Mm. And um, that is deeply satisfying. You know, I do a lot of guest conducting and it's always fun. As I always say, it's like going on a date with, you know, no, nothing to be worried about. Just go and have fun. And usually when you're with an orchestra, they want to be, you know, the best they are because that's the, they're proud of themselves. And, and uh, you know, you want to find out about them and that's a fun experience. Um, but there's really nothing like feeling that you've changed the trajectory of an orchestra. You've, you've helped them grow. You've helped them take risks, uh, uh, change their imagination, the way they think about pieces, and make them more vital to the community, which mm. is the only way our orchestras in the States stay alive.
0: I think it's the same. I mean, it's slightly different the way they're funded here, but, you know, you've got to be involved with your community, and the community must feel that, you know, that they they own the orchestra to some degree. Um, you know, I, Often I hear presenters say in Birmingham, you know, please come back and remember this is your orchestra it belongs to the city and uh getting that out there is important
1: that's absolutely right i mean you have to make them proud to be your partner with the orchestra and i think that's that's something that in the states you know that we've people have been doing for maybe 150 years now taking the responsibility not only for orchestras but hospitals building hospitals building churches building schools because at a at the beginning, the government was not able to do any of that, so mm. so there 's more of a feeling of of really a partnership, and they are invested and they feel proud of that so while it it can be challenging and you know we 're facing a very challenging period now, you know coming out of hopefully the virus but but it does make for relationships that that are strong and and continuous and uh, that's that 's very satisfying
0: did you enjoy the uh... Well, I'm just trying, going to use an analogy maybe of a sports coach um, sort of thing of building your team. Um, you know, if you're a football coach, you know, you get invited to go and be manager of Manchester United and then you've got the team in front of you. And then over those years, you build, people retire, people leave and join other rooksters. Did you enjoy that sort of team building thing of think, thinking, yeah, I, I know what the sort of sound I'd like. It was on my new principal oboe or my new principal horn. Um, and and or were you how involved were you allowed to be in that because it differs from country to country
1: well I did enjoy building the team and um I think that's that's one of the 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 most important things is finding the people who who are artistically right for your situation so Mm. yes and in in the case of Buffalo when I when I came to Buffalo which was around 2000 um there were um a number of people who were at retirement age and slowly over the next few years retired, um, and so there has been a great deal of new, of new, uh, a sense of newness in the orchestra. In fact, I think I've, in the 20 years I've been in Buffalo, have probably uh, hired 50 people in yeah. all. So. Wow. So there's this, and there was there's this beautiful um, uh, sort of uh, karma now on the stage of people who've been with the orchestra for a long time, and people who are literally stepping out of the conservatory and onto the stage of the Buffalo Philharmonic, uh, and everything that comes with that—the wonder, the excitement, and the inexperience. So the um, the beautiful melding of that of of inviting people into the orchestra who then become part of a family, part of a fabric. Mm. Um, and and in, in the case of Buffalo, uh, the music director makes that decision and I know it's not always this way in, in Europe uh, with the advice and assistance of a committee. Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a joint process and it, um, it works very well. And I think that it works well in an orchestra that embraces the new people coming in. And and actually, I have to tell you that every choice is made completely behind a screen. So mm. it, we choose people without without knowing anything about them, um, and even at the end, even the final round, we do not see them. So, and um, I think that that for me has been a very good thing.
0: And well, it's it's sort of coming in more and more often over here. Um, the pr- the decision process that you just described is almost exactly the same as it is in Birmingham, or it, or it was when I got my job. Um, and uh, I, I, a thought popped into my head, and I thought, I, I, I'll tell you this anyway, that um, only recently, and now we're, we're talking 2020, and Simon Rattle joined the uh, CBS in 1980-81, only recently, I think, the last person who was in the orchestra before he joined left, and those people were called the pre-Rattleites, um, <laughs> 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 so, I'm wondering whether you know there's a similar thing that we in a pre lights that can be used in Buffalo or Virginia that people who were there before you started. But yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, that that mixture of blend of the older people who were there, you know, been there 30 40 years and can pass that the way the ways on to the younger ones who, as you said, are just fresh out of conservatoire. It's It's wonderful. It's a
1: wonderful thing, you know, because that the uh, when I first came to Buffalo, there were people who who played with uh, our first music directors, William Steinberg and and Joseph Cripps. They'd actually played with these people. There were people who came to the Buffalo Philharmonic as principals from the Cleveland Orchestra and who could tell me stories about rehearsing with Zell. I mean, that was an amazing time for me, you know, as a, a relatively young conductor coming in and hearing stories about Zell, who is one of my heroes of uh, Hearing personal stories about this man, uh, and now, of course, most of the people in the orchestra don't probably never even saw Leonard Bernstein in person. Mm. Uh, very young, but. Um, but that there's something of a kind of passing on of that, you know, that you only can learn in an orchestra because you're sitting next to someone who has 35 more years of experience than you and is going to help you through this. And, and, uh, and you're bringing your strength and your, you know, your, your willingness to try anything. And it's, uh, it's a very good process, very good mm-hmm. tapestry.
0: You mentioned earlier guest conducting. Um, how do you find first dates? How do you find first dates with orchestras? How do you find traveling and being on the road? Have you got a, a way of dealing with that and coping with that?
1: Well, that you know, the traveling is actually the maybe my least favorite part of the job. I mean, being in different places, I love. And when oh. I'm in a different city, I try and take complete advantage of that, of trying to find. Uh, what 's special about the city? what to visit? what restaurants do the musicians go and have their lunch and you know that kind of thing to really really live that week in the city uh, traveling is is not fun I mean it, maybe it was fun at the beginning it 's not really fun now but um, but it 's so worth it because the the idea of meeting an orchestra and and hearing their character because for me uh That's the true fascination of conducting, is to hear how orchestras are different, not to make them the same. Mm. um, uh, I know there's a feeling that, you know, orchestras lose their individuality, but I I think the individuality is there if you let it shine through, Uh, if you listen to them as they're playing. So I know when I go as a guest, I always like to have them play for a while. Uh, You know, say hello, a few comments, and then let's play through the first movement, or let's play through the whole tone poem, and I know some people say, well, that's a waste of time. But for me, it's not a waste of time because I can hear who they are. Mm. And they're telling me something, you know, not in words, but they're telling me something about themselves. And every orchestra wants to sound at their best, you know, so they're really, they're really uh, shining. And it's so beautiful to discover that about them and, and, uh, uh, and I, I think the experience of guest conducting for me has been very developmental because it, it, it's all of a sudden, it shows me that there's, not, there's no reason why that orchestra, the Stuttgart Orchestra, has to play Tchaikovsky for the way the Buffalo Philharmonic plays Tchaikovsky for. <laughs> there's there's not, not a reason for that. I mean yes i have to come with a very very developed idea of of my my interpretation of the piece But i have to leave room for them to be who they are mm. and and if you can do that you know without sort of letting go of the reins if you can do that just um let them let them inform the rehearsals and the performance you really have the feeling that their work then is into is unique to them
0: yeah, yeah. Um, And I would imagine that it would be on one of those guest conducting visits that you first met the Ulster Orchestra in Belfast. And to my next question, which is having been music director in Virginia and Buffalo and other places in the US and then music director in Belfast with the Ulster Orchestra, what did you find the biggest differences were either side of the Atlantic Um, in approach or uh, personality or um, what was it like?
1: well my 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 years with the ulster orchestra were r- really happy ones and they are an astonishing group i think that uh, <laughs> one of the things i would say in front of any orchestra is that uh, no one can sight read like uk orchestras i mean mm. they are just amazing and they and they they were able to play the most difficult things that we would stumble through you know and have to really rehearse Rhythmically difficult things. Uh, I remember uh, reading Shaker loops of John Adams with them, and it was it was quite astonishing. Not one misstep in, in something that's very confusing and very very uh, disorienting. Uh, they were amazing. Uh, as music director or, or or principal conductor, I felt I had. Fewer responsibilities than 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 in the states, you know. The, for instance, the the process of choosing musicians was really left completely to the orchestra, and in a way that worked. But in a way, it also took much much longer to get a consensus from the orchestra. So so um, uh, filling positions was not that easy. Um, what I, when I was used to also trying to raise money in in, in the states, it didn't seem to be the way things were done there. And so it was quite a different experience, but musically a fantastic experience with that orchestra. And we made a lot of recordings together, which was great fun.
0: Uh, You are a Grammy award-winning conductor and over 115 records which means that you must like recording the other person i've spoken to about recording is john wilson and i asked him whether he loved recording and why and i'll ask you the same because you've obviously spent a lot of time with the red light on as we would say uh, and the tapes running what do you love about recording
1: well i do love recording and and in most of my work i really love it because it's a chance to to perform and record music that people don't know. This is one of the passions of my life. Is that, that um, while I do an enormous amount of the, you know, the what we call the canon and the pieces that are beloved and justly, justly so there's there are so many pieces that people don't know so much wonderful music that that is informative and inspiring so uh, much of my recording life has been dedicated to that and mm. i've loved that because the musicians are also for the most part discovering this music too it's all all new it's new to all of us and in a way that's really helped buffalo in these 20 years um, develop um, not only their expertise about recording and their strength and their their focus, which recording teaches you, but also their sense of adventure and, mm. in a way, their sense of trust in each other and in me and vice versa, so that that we can tackle something that no one's ever heard and there's no recording and there's no performance history of it. Um, that that's a wonderful thing.
0: Mm. Well, it's funnily enough um as we mentioned earlier about pieces that nobody knows and I said that you know you you do record things that are on the very extreme edges of the repertoire if I put it that way there was a student at the Birmingham Conservatoire where I go and conduct uh two or three times a year who came bounding up to me and said I think you're gonna love this recording Mike and thrust a cd into my hand and it was the Glier Symphony Number no. 3, which is subtitled Ilya Muromets, which is a monster of a piece. Yes. Um, and I was going to ask you, what was it like to record that? I mean, did you do it over, a? Did you, had you performed it before you recorded it or did you do it first and then performed it?
1: Uh, we, we always perform first. I mean, it's, oh. it's not, in, in Ulster, of course, we we would do recordings that we never played. I mean, never played a performance of, but they mm. we were able to cite read on an astonishing level. But in Buffalo, we do, we have the whole week to live with this piece. And it, in some ways, it's better because we we really develop with it in that time. And, and uh, so we had two performances and uh, uh, then we brought it to Carnegie Hall. We, mm. we were was we, um, just thrilling for us and then we recorded it so uh, it is a monstrous piece but it's if I wish it could be played more often it's just so huge but mm. it is his masterpiece and, and an astonishing work of music
0: it won't, it won't be performed for a while I fear <laughs> <laughs> uh, looking at the orchestration I mean it, you know, it goes into that big <laughs> bag of pieces that we won't be hearing live for quite a while I think that's right sadly um I've asked every conductor this question and uh and the conducting geeks message me to say thanks i do ask every conductor this question when you come to learning new score and as we've just said you learn a lot of new scores or unfamiliar scores do you have a, a method or a process of learning the score do you mark your scores do you use colors pencils or whatever how do you go about it
1: well i just i do have a method and and it's um it's something that i learned you know when i worked at the women's philharmonic i was conducting every concert of pieces that were brand new either they were pieces from the past that had never been played by written by women or contemporary pieces that we were doing the world premiere of and I realized that uh, the first thing for me was to somehow get a sense of the architecture of the piece so uh, describing how I studied it, it was sort of from the largest perspective of it down to the details, mm-hmm. you know, it, looking at a, a movement, let's say, and, and getting the, the, the two big sections or the three big sections of it. And then in each of those sections, finding the themes and finding the connections and then moving down to actually instrumentation of how it was different and how it was used and, and key relationships. So I, I always start from the biggest building, I guess, the biggest view of the building, and then work towards the details. Mm-hmm. And I do mark mark my scores. And uh, sometimes I do use colors because I find that, that the important thing when you're conducting is, is if, as, as you do too, I mean, it's not to look at the score, but to be able to look at the musicians and and communicate with them and sometimes seeing big shapes or big uh, swaths of the music easily and quickly, that can help. And I always do and I think it's critical is I always mark bar periods. Because that to me that helps me see the trajectory of the work and how how the composer is thinking. I mean, when he elongates a phrase or truncates a phrase, what does that mean? But I come see it, you know, quickly. And uh, when you're looking around at a hundred people, maybe, and and trying to, you know, to, to to sort of include them all in in what's going on, having a marked score helps me.
0: Mm, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, it makes it pop off the page, and it makes me sometimes not have to go you know with my eyes quickly to the far left hand side of the score to see who was playing I can see it because I've marked it in and it's right. obvious you know and, and it, yeah it mean for me it means my eyes are in the score less but then I know other conductors have come on this podcast who said oh if I wrote the things in my score I'd be looking at the score all the time so it's different for everybody but um yeah it seems to be quite a common thing that people start with a massive the sort of big global architecture and then bring it in 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 down down into focus onto details that seems to be a a common plan um
1: well and i think it, it works because of course when we're performing the piece and this is true for every musician who performs any piece uh we have to give a sense of that architecture back to yes. the audience only through hearing which is it was just really difficult to convey a sense of of rightness and trajectory and form uh, subconsciously to the audience, so mm. so if if the conductor has to know the shape of that from the beginning.
0: I've had people on here who've been involved with the setting up of youth orchestras, and people on here who've been involved with the setting up of record labels. Um, what I've never had is somebody who has been involved with setting up of a competition, the Joanne Faletta Guitar Concerto Competition, where they get to play with an orchestra in the final round and. So what inspired you to set that up and what were the difficulties or joys in doing that?
1: Well, the joy of course is that guitar is my instrument, my main instrument and I still play and and so I have an empathy for guitarists. And um, I realized that while there were solo competitions for guitar and there are a number of them, there was not a competition that would enable guitarists to play with an orchestra, so most guitarists never had that opportunity, or mm. or were afraid of that opportunity, didn't know how to do it. So uh, we set this up, um, was it 16 years ago, or uh, I think it, uh, now, that um, our 10 finalists would come to Buffalo, and and they came from all over the world, and. And three of those would be chosen as finalists who played with the orchestra. So three of them had the opportunity to play with the orchestra. The other seven actually played their own concerts, solo concerts in Buffalo. So they were really invited as guest artists as well. Mm. Uh, but um, the orchestra has played, I think, every guitar concerto ever written. <laughs> and, <laughs> and some of them, like the Rodrigo Concierto de Aranoes, many times. Yes. But, um, but it was wonderful to see the talent of guitarists all over the world. I mean, we have never had a winner of the competition that was from U.S. or Canada, and mm-hmm. you think that would be the closest place, of course, but we've had winners from Russia, we've had winners from South America, Europe, Asia, China, uh, Korea. I mean, it's, it's astonishing how the guitar world has has the level of playing has soared, and this has been a just a great great joy for us I mean this year we postponed it only because we we couldn't encourage people to come you know from mm. long distances, which they did, so we can't wait to get it back but it's it's been it's been a special thing for me and and for the orchestra as well
0: I think the byproduct is that you know if if I were to lay a bet somewhere and said um." Oh, uh, there's an orchestra playing a concert, and the concerto's is a guitarist. Uh, the, <laughs> what get have a guess what piece they would be playing? I would imagine. 999 percent of people would say. I bet you it's the Rodrigo, and I think the byproduct would be that now, as you've said, you they get a chance to play a different concerto. You know, most guitar soloists, and there aren't that many in the world, but most would probably wheel out that concerto much more than any other piece um right. and it must be a joy for them to be able to play something else um,
1: well it is and we specifically uh, make it a requirement that uh, we will uh, we have to have three different concertos in the finals so yeah. some of the guitarists are very very clever and very wise about uh, finding a, a concerto that's not that well-known wow. uh, and they might have a better chance, you know, but, um, but I, I can't complain about the Aaron West. It certainly is beautiful and audiences love it, but, but there are so many other wonderful guitar concertos too.
0: Joanne, it is 10 questions time and... What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate?
1: Well, uh, I love the sound of water. I And in both of my homes, I live near water. I live on Lake Erie in in Buffalo. And I live, when I am in Virginia, on the uh, um, Elizabeth River. So the sound of water is something that is so beautiful for me. And I always try and keep a window open so I can listen to it. And there's something, uh, I don't know, organic and peaceful about that and and very centering for me.
0: Yeah. And a sound that you dislike or hate?
1: Siren, a siren, an ambulance, a police, a a tornado alert siren, any kind of siren I find very, very difficult. Well, I suppose it's supposed to be jarring and it is.
0: If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing?
1: Well, the thing I love to do, but I don't get enough time to do it, is to snorkel. And that's oh. But um, I, I, I've spent time working with this, the orchestra in Hawaii and, and discovered snorkeling, which has become a passion of mine now. So I think if I'd spend probably you know, eight of those 24 hours at least in the water, <laughs> just snorkeling. Uh, but if I couldn't get to the water, I guess I would bike ride.
0: I snorkeled for the first time a couple of years ago in the Maldives and I loved it I thought Isn't I'd
1: amazing. Yeah. yeah
0: I'm not I'm not a swimmer at all really and I just I loved it absolutely loved it I can't wait to do it again who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear
1: well I think my big hero is George Sell I've always I've always admired his his uh intense sense of Excellence, and I've been able to watch rehearsals. Of course, I never saw him live, but I watch rehearsals of of uh, him working with the orchestra and his uh, imagination about music. And listening to the Cleveland Orchestra recordings of that time is a revelation. This was an orchestra that was playing beyond any orchestra in the United States in in, in his time, and I think mm. that was because of him. Now I know he was. Um, from my friends that i you know who played for him um a very exacting and very difficult man but uh, uh, there's something about uh, his his just his sense of integrity uh and music making that's so organic to me uh, mm. I, I love his I love his his make his music making
0: which leads me on to who would be a favorite current conductor
1: well, and that would be Sir Simon. I mean, I, I had the chance to get to know him personally a little bit when he used to come to California. When I was conducting in Long Beach, he would often come to the LA Philharmonic, and I got to know him, and I've seen him in Berlin conducting. And I, I think his, I think he's one of the greatest musicians of all time. And his beyond that, though, I mean, his passion for new music, for diversity... Uh, his love of musicians, his his advocacy uh, always for music, and his stewardship—it seems to me—of any orchestra that he works with, he is the steward of that orchestra. I mean, he he cares for it. He he um, builds a, builds a family of trust. Uh, I, i don't know uh, if i if you would agree with this but i I feel he's like an orchestra citizen he's a musician citizen in the best sense and that it goes beyond him it goes beyond any one performance it is the the concept of music that 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 drives him and i have the greatest admiration for him
0: Mm, uh, i I agree with you as well about the stewardship um i was lucky enough to be hired as a violinist as a 21 year old violinist and join the orchestra um Almost halfway through his time in Birmingham and got to see about half of his time and and the symphony hall years basically and yeah, I mean absolutely the way that he was involved from top to bottom um, yeah incredible um, incredible person to have around um, in every aspect. This can be technically the hardest you know three eight over three sixteen with a you know jump in the air, or it can be you know a Wagner opera that killed your back. Or it could also be a piece that you've just found emotionally you cannot conduct anymore. So what is the hardest work you have ever conducted?
1: Well, and uh, the work I'm about to say really sort of fits all of, the, all of those qualifications. And it was the Bernstein Mass. Ah. Uh, and uh, simply from a point of physical exhaustion, it, it was the hardest thing I've done physically. It was two hours of standing without a break and without, without any rest whatsoever, two hours of continuous music without a pause. Um, and not only was music continuous, it was an incredible amalgam of styles. I mean, it would go from classic to rock, to pop, to choral music. Everything was rhythmically complex and it was emotionally draining. I mean, mm. it, 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 it was, it was um, intellectually challenging, emotionally challenging. And in the end, after, after many months of studying it and not feeling that I, that I could get my arms around it, at the end, at the end of the, pers- the last performance, I found that it had been so fulfilling. And I realized I was crying. I didn't even really know why. But I was, I was overwhelmed by it. But it was the most draining, the most difficult work I had ever conducted.
0: When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without?
1: Books, and, and I still like to use books rather than a, 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 a pad. Mm. Uh, books, poetry books, novels, uh, I have to have them. In fact, I think I would be quite panicky if I found myself on a plane without at least two or three books, <laughs> just to know that I have them. <laughs> I won't finish them all, but they're there. So I have to have books around me and traveling especially.
0: I've never really thought about it. But I'm with you on this. I actually prefer a book to a Kindle or a whatever you want to call them. Yes, Why? Yes. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just a physical thing being in your hands and you can flick the pages and, you know, I don't know what it is, but yeah, I much prefer that. I, I,
1: I think it's the same with me. I love the idea of flipping back to check on something or to reread something again. And while you can do it on a Kindle, it's not its not that organic, I think, so... Mm. so uh, but I, I do like books, and so if it does take a little bit more room, and I've got to carry on as like a big, a big pocketbook or something. But, but it's well worth it, and I always find I feel very grounded when I know I have books with me.
0: What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor?
1: Well, the traveling, and I, that's that's just it sounds practical and, and mundane, but that's what it is. I mean, the the act of getting from one place to another is not doesn't hold any appeal for me anymore but being in that new place is is so inspiring that that uh, i do it and i and i will continue to do it but but the traveling if i could sort of beam myself to the other place i'd be very happy But it's mm. not going to happen
0: <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt
1: well i always have loved to write and in fact i think that that, that goes sort of hand in hand with music. I mean, it's a language and music mm. is a language and the pacing and the, the, um, the interpretation of how we speak and how we create music is somehow tied in my mind. So writing would be something that, uh, that I could see if I, for some reason, did not become a musician would have really enjoyed. And I still enjoy when I get a chance to write.
0: If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink?
1: Well, this is going to sound very nostalgic, but I think I would love to have a, a, my grandma's ravioli one more time. Uh, we spent every Sunday afternoon when I was a child at her little, little uh, apartment in Little Italy in New York, and she always made ravioli. Um, but I still remember that. I haven't had tasted it for a long time. But if I could have that with a glass of red wine, that would be heaven for me.
0: That sounds wonderful really enjoyed our chat today Joanne and I hope to see you after all of this Covid stuff is over.
1: I too Mike this was a lot of fun and you made it very much very so enjoyable.
0: A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time I talk to an Israeli conductor who started conducting very young and has gone on to be chief conductor with both the Iceland Symphony Orchestra and the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. He is also the driving force behind a music festival that started in Iceland, but has now expanded across the globe. Until then, bye-bye.